Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki. I'm here with John Mitchell again this week for our 10th episode of the Saturday Blitz Podcast. It's been so great talking with you all the past two and a half months. Um, this week we're going to be looking at the Tommy Stevens transfer to Mississippi State, reuniting with Joe Moorhead down there, and then we're going to be diving in more broadly to look at second-year head coaches and evaluating where we think they stand in terms of rising or falling uh, in the 2019 season. Uh, before we get started, John, great to see you again. How are you doing this week? I'm doing great. It's kind of wild that this is already episode 10. I got to say, it feels like, you know, just yesterday we were having preliminary discussions on how to get this kind of off the ground. So it's wild that it's been two and a half months and we've been kind of going strong. So like Zach said, thank uh, thank everyone who's been listening. We got a nice increase in listeners last week. uh, So hope you enjoyed the topics and hopefully you guys keep coming back. Definitely. Um, I think we got another really good topic today. Uh, Definitely since the last time we talked, we saw um, one of the big transfer portal stories come through in terms of Tommy Stevens uh, officially done at Penn State and moving to a different state a little further south in the SEC. Um, What were your first thoughts when you heard that that Stevens was going to be reuniting with Moorhead? Well, you know, I believe that was probably everybody who, you know, made a list for Tommy Stevens on where he might transfer. I think Mississippi State was always a logical choice, a logical landing spot for him being, you know, Joe Moorhead was his offensive coordinator at Penn State um, with, you know, Nick Fitzgerald moving on from Mississippi State having graduated. There's an opening there. I know Keaton Thompson being there uh, was kind of considered the heir apparent to Fitzgerald. Uh, But, you know, I guess... There's no guarantee that um, Tommy Stevens is going to be the starting quarterback, but I would say it probably leans that way. you got a kid in Stevens who's got one year of eligibility left and left Penn State because, you know, I guess he felt like he was probably a little bit behind Sean Clifford for the starting quarterback job there coming out of spring, so decided that, you know, he's going to go somewhere else and had plenty of suitors. I mean, this is a guy who doesn't have a ton of starting experience, but he got a lot of you know, mop-up duty and stuff like that. And when McSorley, Trace McSorley was hurt, he got in there and, you know, showed some promise, also played some receiver at Penn State and's also proven to be a, you know, pretty versatile athlete who I think, though, personally, Zach, probably would have been a better fit for Mississippi State under Dan Mullen than under Joe Moorhead because, interestingly enough, something I talked about a lot on the website last year was how fit Nick Fitzgerald was kind of a, you know, square peg in a round hole in Moorhead's offense, it's not really the type of quarterback that Moorhead, uh, you know, kind of covets to run his offense. So it's kind of, you know, interesting. Maybe Stevens has a little bit more uh, passing ability than Fitzgerald has. I don't know if he's quite as good of a runner, but it'll be an interesting um, thing to see next year to see if, you know, Stevens can kind of run that offense. Obviously, he's got the experience, kind of already knows the system. So it'll be an easier transition for him than, you know, many of the post-spring transfers will have. Uh, so I don't, it's, it's interesting. I think there'll be a nice little quarterback battle there between those two. Uh, there's also several other young quarterbacks on that roster who aren't going to give in willingly. So he's got a nice uh, pick of the crop. I just wonder if, if you know, Stevens is a really good fit for what they're going to want to do. Certainly. I mean, when we, he, you know, Moorhead was still at Penn State. 
Stevens wasn't going to get much playing time with McSorley there. That That's a pretty obvious case. I think it's really interesting what you speak to about Fitzgerald not fitting well in that system either. Um, and I think that might be part of the problems we've seen with Thompson and why they're even looking at grad transfers. It's one of those things where he's, I, if I'm not mistaken, he's completed less than 50% of his passes in his college career, uh, Thompson that is, and you know, that's just not going to cut it in Moorhead's system, not being able to to get balls downfield accurately. And I think that's what Stevens could definitely bring to the table in terms of just better passing. Obviously, Fitzgerald, like you said, was not necessarily the ideal player to have coming in your first year into that system. Stevens obviously has some familiarity with Moorhead, with what Moorhead wants to do. So there could, you know, it could be interesting there in that regards. Um, You know, one thing that really came up for me, though, is it, it was pretty obvious that Penn State was going to be moving on and not you know, it, it, there's a reason why Stevens put himself into the transfer portal, especially at that late stage of the game. And it's really interesting. It kind of speaks to how spring football can, you know, really suss out where where players do stand. And I think that this really does open the door. I'm sure we'll see this more in the future as the transfer portal continues to become more of a thing in college football. Um, just seeking out those new opportunities and the new openings that are available around the country. And I think also for the programs that end up bringing in these players, it, it obviously fills an immediate need, or in this case, something that, you know, is they at least need some more options to assess. I think Mississippi State definitely has the potential to be one of those sort of you know, second-tier dark horse sort of spoiler teams in the SEC West. I don't think they're necessarily, you know, even with Stevens playing lights out, they're not necessarily built to be the juggernaut in the West this year. That's pretty readily apparent to anybody who follows college football. But they do have the potential to get eight, nine wins, upset at least one team along the way, you know, get to a decent bowl game. I think that's certainly... You know, that's this, this sort of the plateau that Mullen established while he was there. And I think Moorhead has definitely kept that possibility in play for them. Yeah, I, I would say that's I, – I have some thoughts on that. I know we'll get into in the next segment when we talk about kind of the first-year coaches from last year moving on. Uh, but I know, you know, a lot of people were pretty disappointed uh, in Moorhead's first season at Mississippi State because they had a lot of talent last year. Um I mean, they had the number one defense, number one total defense in college football, and they lost a lot of guys from there. If you just look at, you know, three first round guys, Jeffrey Simmons, Montez Sweat, Jonathan Abram, all off to the NFL. Those are losses that specifically a school like Mississippi State that's not turning over top five recruiting classes every year. Those are guys that are going to be tough to replace. There's obviously still some talent on that defense and on that entire roster. But, you know, they went eight and four last year. And, you know, some of that's, you know, growing pains. It's got to, they usually call that, you know, first year coaches, they call it year zero for a lot of programs. And a lot of people at a place like Mississippi State, you're not going to necessarily get a year zero like some of these coaches get because you walk into a situation where there's a lot of, a lot of talent still left. The cupboards are stocked pretty full, you know, with Dan Mullen moving on to Florida and getting that opportunity. 
So coverage are stocked pretty full for him. And then, you know, it wasn't a great first year, but again, you still have to give him time to implement a system. And it is interesting uh, bringing in Tommy Stevens, kind of the familiar uh, quarterback that, you know, Moorhead knows and kind of helped groom to what he is. So, you know, you have a good point about Thompson's accuracy. Even he started the first game last season. I forget which FCS school they opened with last year, but they opened the season against an FCS school. Fitzgerald was hurt and Thompson started. He threw five touchdown passes, but I believe he was 13 of 30 throwing. So it was kind of an all or nothing. Either he was throwing a touchdown pass or he was throwing an incomplete pass. That was pretty much, you know, all that was happening in that game. So I know the accuracy issues, probably something that, you know, Moorhead noticed even more so uh, in the spring with Thompson taking, you know, the majority of the number one snaps. So, you know, it'll be interesting. And, and it's interesting because Stevens kind of, you know, was the favorite to be the Penn State quarterback with McSorley gone. He was coming in. And you see that a lot, these kids. Uh, and that's one of the things the transfer portal is so good for is they get to at least weigh their options. You know, if Stevens wanted to, even after entering the portal, he could have returned to Happy Valley. He didn't have to, you know, make the transfer. The portal allows you just to get in there, weigh your options, hear hear pitches from other programs, and obviously he was impressed enough with what Moorhead had to say. Most likely that he would be, you know, the front runner for the job. You'd have to imagine he got something uh, of a promise uh, like that just because he had other options. He could have gone to several other schools who, you know, were quarterback needy. Maybe not as good of a, a program and playing for as good of a team as Mississippi State could be next year. He might have had to have taken a step down, maybe even the group of five. Uh, to several of those programs who needed some signal callers. But, you know, it, it is a good point. Something you'll see more and more, I think, with the portal. I mean, just last week, too, uh, Malik Willis entered his name into the transfer portal from Auburn. He came into the spring as the favorite to win Auburn's job, and then quickly it a four-way quarterback race whittled down to two when you were down to, you know, redshirt freshman Joey Gatewood or, or true freshman Bo Nix, who kind of both outpaced Willis in the spring, and he saw the writing on the wall, and now he's – you know, weighing his options and almost certainly leaving. It's tough for, you know, upperclassmen quarterbacks when they get passed by underclassmen. Yeah. You know, Stevens, for example, is going into his final year. Sean Clifford's a sophomore. You know, if you lose that quarterback battle, then that's it. You know, you're not going to get another chance at starting unless there's an injury. Uh, so, you know, you can't fault the kid for doing that. And I, at least he's going to a system where he's familiar. He'll have the advantage on a lot of these post-spring grad transfers who are going to go into situations where they've got to spend the entire summer in the books trying to learn the playbook, along with getting acclimated in an entirely new university um, and a new living environment and everything like that. So it can be really tough. So at least for him, he'll have that instant familiarity with Moorhead. Yeah, I you know, it's hard enough to adjust to a move from a place like State College to Starkville. That's cer- right. That certainly is an adjustment that that has to be made. And if you can, you know, mitigate the amount of that, that churn that you have to deal with, if you at least have some, you know, comfortable place, some familiarity that you can go to. And in this case, it's definitely a system that he, like you said, does know it, it can be really helpful for that transition. Um, so yeah, I think it is a really good point to be making, um, I think it will be interesting to see what Moorhead does with with him now that he is the guy. The one other thing that really kind of spurned out of this, though, for me is looking at what it does for you know, recruiting down the line. So you obviously mentioned, you know, 
Mississippi State isn't the type of program that's going to have, you know, five-star classes, top five, top ten classes all the time. Stocking the cupboards there is, it's a process. It definitely is in a way that it isn't at some other SEC powerhouses and powerhouses more broadly across the country. You know, um, you mentioned Keaton Thompson. Like, does this put him into the transfer portal now if he loses his job? Um, even looking at like Jalen Maiden, their four-star recruit from from 2018 at quarterback, what do these guys do? Obviously, Maiden had he used his redshirt year last year while Fitzgerald was still in town and was looking at maybe being able to compete for the job this year. Um, obviously, Thompson, it, you know, it, it looked like Thompson's to lose coming into this year, but this just adds a new wrinkle to this, um, and. If, you know, one or both of these guys did decide to go into the transfer portal, look at, you know, look at what other options they have. It just forces, you know, uh, Moorhead and his staff to reboot. They thought they had a quarterback in Maiden who is, you know, going to be the guy for the next several years who could, you know, ostensibly be like Sean Clifford was coming in as a sophomore and taking over that job for the next two, three years. Um. And obviously, you know, this is all speculation. There's no sign yet that either of these players um, that'll be competing with Stevens are are looking at transferring. You know, this is all just just speculation and hypothesis right now. But just more more generally, looking at any program that's bringing in a transfer like this, when you have players who are already on the roster, and like you said. They are those players who are looking to step up and take over a situation once the established starter left town. It can have that spiral effect where it does force you to go back to focusing on positions you thought you did have locked down in recruiting. And for a school like Mississippi State, that can divert attention away from, you know, like from, from other areas that do need focus. Right. I think I think the the Stevens transfer is far more um, damning for Thompson than it is Maiden. I think you know Thompson's kind of been groomed as the heir apparent, so he's the guy I could definitely see maybe exploring his transfer options. If you're Jalen Maiden, though, you're thinking, eh, you know, I, Stevens is going to be here for one year and that's it, right? One yeah. and out, and then I can take the job as a as a redshirt sophomore and still have three years of eligibility to play. And my guess is that's probably what Moorhead will pitch to Maiden to be like, hey, I think you're the guy for the future. I just don't think you're quite ready to take the job this year. But I do really feel confident in your abilities to, you know, take over in 2020. So I think that's probably how, even if he doesn't believe it, how he's going to pitch it just to avoid the mass exodus of quarterbacks. Because you see that all the time, right? You see uh, a transfer quarterback come in or even a hot shot freshman quarterback come in, then you see the mass exodus. We saw it at Clemson last year with Trevor Lawrence coming in. That pushed Hunter Johnson to Northwestern, who himself was a highly sought-after five-star quarterback coming out of high school. And then after winning the job in the middle of the season, it pushed Kelly Bryant out the door as well. So usually if you see you know a transfer like that, just like at Ohio State this year too, Zach, you got Justin Fields coming in, and then immediately you see Tate Martell and yeah. Matthew Baldwin both take off. So young quarterbacks especially, it hurts. I think the advantage that Moorhead has 
is that he's bringing in a senior. So it's one year. So even a guy like Thompson would still have remaining eligibility after next year. Maiden would obviously have more, but, you know, you can at least pitch it for that. If you're a program that's bringing in a kid, you know, like Justin Fields, who's a sophomore and still has three years of eligibility left, if you see that as a Tate Martell, then, you know, it's probably time to explore your options and figure out, you know, somewhere else to go. And same thing at Clemson. I mean, Hunter Johnson knew probably the first time he saw Trevor Lawrence throw a football. Well, I got to figure something else out because I'm not as good as that kid. And he's going to be, and it's not, you know, it takes a lot to realize that because kids like Johnson, kids like even Thompson at Mississippi state, they've always been the best quarterback, best football player in the room their entire lives. Right. Cause yeah. these guys are playing high major college football, you know? So it's kind of humbling to see a guy across the practice field from you that's throw, making these throws that you can't do. And I know this isn't, has, doesn't really have anything to do with, with the Mississippi State situation, but I think it's interesting in the broad scope of quarterback transfers because that's been the most heavily, at least, discussed position when it comes to the recent flood of, you know, not just graduate transfers, but just uh, tra- transfers uh, garnering immediate eligibility at their new schools like Fields, like Martell, and several others. Yeah, but yeah. Obviously, quarterback is the one that's going to get the biggest play. We're talking about Stevens right now, rather than other stories we could be talking about because it does draw such interest, and because it does have such an impact. You know, like you, you get that quarterback that that can make a difference, especially if you do get a young one. You know, like you were saying, you find a Trevor Lawrence, you're set for three years. And then they're gonna right. they're gonna declare early and, and go pro, um, mm-hmm. but you know you're set for three years. It, it, it's really quite a lockdown situation. So I think you do make a good point about the fact that this isn't this probably won't have as much of an impact on the quarterback situation and the roster at, at that position at Mississippi State it'd be unlikely to see both of these guys leave. It'd be even unlikely to see one of them leave, I think. But, you know, we've seen that happen in the past. We've seen the musical chairs happen whenever we do get, uh, you know, the transfer game going. The music starts and the music stops and, and everybody's in a new location. And the way the NCAA is going, they're most likely going to be able to play immediately if they've taken that step. And, and, you know, I think, I think football in general is all the better for it. I think the options for these players are all the better for it. We've talked about it in previous podcasts, how you have to get tape down. You have to get tape down for scouts. If you, if you have any pretensions on playing professional football, um, you know, quarterback is a position where we've seen backup quarterbacks in the past be able to, you know, get in, get an opportunity with a professional team. Um, but it's rare. It's really rare that a professional team is going to take a chance on a guy who was holding a clipboard for most of his career. And I think, you know, Stevens obviously sees that, that writing on the wall. He, that's exactly what he was at Penn State. And it's hard to argue when you have a guy like Trace McSorley there who was a really underrated quarterback for much of his career. And, you know, um, you see the next guy coming in. You see a guy like Sean Clifford who looks like he's going to step up and get those next several years of tape. 
it, it you've got to find something. And so I think in this situation, Stevens probably did the best thing possible for himself, like you said, in terms of knowing what he's getting into, knowing Moorhead, setting himself up for as much success as possible on tape. I think that's probably my biggest takeaway is if he has any hope of playing at the next level, this was probably his best possible opportunity to make that happen. Right. And to be fair, you know, there was never, James Franklin never named Sean Clifford the starting quarterback. That wasn't a battle that was decided. I think that's where some of the sour grapes have come out from some of the circles of the internet that get mad when kids make decisions that are best for themselves because they, they feel like a kid like that's quitting, right? They're dropping out of a competition, but it's not quitting. I mean, he might, you know, you never know what's been said behind closed doors. He could also, again, he could be looking over at the other side of the practice field, noticing, hey, this kid's better than me. So yeah. I know that if I'm in my coach's position, that's who I'm picking to be the starting quarterback. And I understand that. I accept that. So for me personally, now I've got to go do, you know, what's best for me. And that's, you know, explore transfer. It's not like he's got two or three years of eligibility left and could keep competing for the job. This is it. This is his last opportunity to play college football. And maybe, you know, Zach, it's not even could be a pro thing. This could be the last opportunity he's got to play football, period, for yeah. the rest of his life. It's true. You know, not not many uh, college football players get the opportunity to play in the NFL. And, you know, he's going to take advantage of that. And I, you know, fully support his decision. You and I have been on record plenty of times fully supporting uh, college players and their pursuit of transfer opportunities uh, outside of where they are. So I, I think, you know, circling back to the Thompson discussion, I do expect that he could transfer. It's kind of, it kind of reminds me on a smaller scale to the Oklahoma situation. You know, you've got a decorated quarterback and not comparing Nick Fitzgerald to Kyler Murray, <laughs> but in the same vein, Nick, Nick Fitzgerald owns a lot of Mississippi state records after leaving Starkville, just like Kyler Murray now owns several Oklahoma records and has a Heisman trophy added to the trophy case. So, you know, Oklahoma had a kid in Austin Kendall who felt like he was the heir apparent to Murray and, you know, they signed Oklahoma not only signed a five star quarterback in this cycle and Spencer Rattler, who looks to be the eventual heir apparent at quarterback. They also, you know, brought in Jalen Hurts from Alabama as the one year stopgap quarterback to kind of fill that hole until Rattler is available. And Kendall saw the writing on the wall from that. You don't bring in a kid like Jalen Hurts to sit the bench. He's no. too high profile of a name. He was told he was going to be the starting quarterback at Oklahoma or he would have gone somewhere else. Yeah. So Kendall ends up transferring to West Virginia, even though he had multiple seasons of eligibility left and he could have sat the bench for one year and tried it again next year competing against Rattler. But, you know, again, he probably sees the writing on the walls and understands that, you know, I've got to find a situation that works best for me. And I think it's great. I think the transfer portal is working maybe even better than these institutions anticipated and probably to its detriment, because I think it's working so well for players that inevitably you're going to have the NCAA, you're going to have other coaches across college football raising a fuss about it because they're, you know, getting frustrated by the high degree of transfers. But, you know, this is the one thing, as we talked about before, where the players really have their own destiny in their hands and they can actually control their situations. And it's unrealistic to expect them to be locked in to situations where they're unhappy for four years because, you know, arbitrary, well, you've got to stay here and honor your scholarship. No other 
college um, student, no other person working a job has to continue going to that school or continue working that job that they hate if they don't want to. You know, you yeah. and I right now, Zach, could quit both of our jobs. We could turn off this podcast right now and never do it again. Such is our choice, right? Yeah. Or transfer to another podcast. I don't know how that works, but, uh, you know, we could do that. So, and I don't understand where the fuss comes with stuff like this. I mean, these are kids making decisions that are best for them and more power to them. I hope Tommy Stevens finds success in Starkville. I really do. Certainly. Before we uh, take a quick break, I just want to touch on one quick thing that you said as well just a moment ago. Um, Looking at the idea of these players quitting on a team, I think, you know, you made a really good point about a player recognizing that the next guy up is better than him. I think it's a really humbling thing to have happen. And honestly, making that decision to sort of like clear the path and allow that next person to step in, it can be a like, yes, they're choosing a situation that allows them to maximize their opportunity to get playing time. But at the same time, they obviously chose to go to this school and they love that school. You know, even if you're leaving the school, you still have you know, an affinity for it and for the guys you were in the locker room with. And honestly, if that's quitting, like you're setting up your teammates for success. You're you're honestly doing something that's in the best interest of both yourself and the program you're leaving. And I think that gets lost in the shuffle too much. Players wouldn't be leaving if they had playing time. You know, they wouldn't be leaving if that wasn't a question. And recognizing that, you know, it opens the door for, you know, another recruit to, you know, another recruiting spot to be available down the line next year. You might have opened up one of those 85 scholarships. You know, you've allowed the team not to have the dissension of, you know, infighting in the locker room, having some people be for this quarterback and some people be for that one. You've really cleared the air there. And, you know... I think that's the final thing I'm left with is just like it takes a big person to make the decision that, you know, ultimately quitting or not says I'm going to do what's best for me. But I also want you guys to know that I'm honoring your situation and really want the best for you moving forward, too. Yeah, I mean, what's the old adage in football, Zach? If you have two quarterbacks, then you don't have any quarterbacks, yeah. right? So yeah. I think that's a good point about potential dissension in the locker room when you've got, you know, at Penn State, for example, the veterans in the locker room rallying around Stevens, but then other players being like, well, we understand that, you know, Sean Clifford's the better player here, and we want to, you know, be on the best, the best path to success because, honestly, the Big Ten feels pretty open next year. It could be kind of a transition year for Ohio State with Dwayne Haskins going pro and Urban Meyer uh, retiring. So it could be a transition year there. And then who knows what's going to happen with Michigan. You know, they had kind of a humbling end of the season last year. Um, and I know we'll dig a lot further into that in future podcast episodes when we really start, you know, previewing the 2019 college football season. But Yeah, I mean, I think that's really all I've got on this subject. Certainly. Um, Well, we'll be back to talk a bit more about Moorhead along with the rest of the second-year head coaches going into 2019 uh, once we come back from this quick break. 
So stay tuned, everybody. We'll see you on the other side. Welcome back from the break, everybody. I'm Zach here with John on the Saturday Blitz podcast once again. Uh, This segment, we're going to be talking a bit about Power 5 head coaches, uh, specifically the 12 that are going into their second year in the 2019 season. We're going to break this up into two segments for this since we have a lot of it basically breaks up six and six. So for this first segment, let's talk about the SEC and the ACC. I think, you know, probably the best place to start, I'm thinking, is the ACC, since there's only one name there, and it's a pretty big name to start with in terms of Willie Taggart at Florida State. So looking at Taggart and his situation there, John, do you think uh, things are trending upward or downward for Taggart? Zach, I really hope things are trending upward. I've, you know, well noted as a as a Taggart supporter uh, for many years, even back when he was at his alma mater at Western Kentucky, just the way his teams played then. But, I mean, I, I think it's too early to tell, to be honest, because, you know, we've talked about on uh, the podcast here before about how, you know, as much as people want to believe that Jimbo Fisher left Taggart a lot to work with, he really didn't. There was some big holes on Florida State's roster that should have been evident to everybody coming into last year, considering they were coming off a 6-6 six and six regular season in Fisher's last season, and yet still people were projecting them to win 9 or 10 games. They were projected to, you know, I think they were in the top 20 nationally in the AP poll to start the season, uh, mainly because you know, DeAndre Francois was coming back from injury. So obviously for everyone having a a proven quarterback solves all your issues. If, you know, you've got an offensive line, that's not an absolute dumpster fire like Florida States was last season. So it's going to take, it's going to take time. And I don't think that the fans in Tallahassee are going to have the patience to let this play out um, without putting a lot of pressure on the boosters and the university officials, because, when your line is as pillaged as Florida State was, it takes several recruiting cycles to get that back um, to an acceptable level, to a Florida State, to an ACC or Power 5 conference level, and they weren't anywhere close to that last year, and that's not some magical fix. You're not going to snap your fingers, no. and the line is going to immediately be, you know, have two or three all-ACC performers on it. There's going to be some issues on that line again next season. How does he you know, adjust and adapt to that. And in part, you know, that's something Taggart's going to have to do is adjust something he wasn't really able to do last year. You know, maybe they really get more into the quick passing game, throw some more screens and stuff out there to kind of get the ball out and kind of mask the fact that the offensive line's so bad. But there's only so much masking for that. Once your tendencies and stuff are known that you don't have a line, then you're going to be schemed against in that regard. And it's going to be really tough for your offense to thrive. Uh, they had a lot of close games last year, so maybe their close game luck will flip and maybe they'll be able to, you know, pull out a couple. But I don't know, Zach, how many wins do you think it takes uh, for him to continue on? Because, I mean, as crazy it is to say, I think another mediocre season could be it for him there. Yeah, I, you know, I'm looking over their schedule right now. And in most of these cases, when a coach has failed to become bowl eligible the previous season, we would say at least getting back to a bowl game. But I don't think six or seven wins is going to be enough to satisfy the Seminoles fan base. And looking over the schedule, I mean, they opened the year with Boise State in Jacksonville. I, I honestly, I would... St- 
I would see Boise State as a favorite right now in that game. And I, you know, even given what Boise State has lost, the Broncos are not in, you know, the cleanest of situations, but they're, they're stacked more sustainably for the future, I think, right now than Florida State is. I think they're set up for success in the 2019 season better. So, you know, they could be 0-1 right out of the gate. Then obviously they got Louisiana Monroe. Probably a win for them. You got to figure they can probably take down that Sunbelt team. But then beyond that, I mean, it's at Virginia, a couple of home games, Louisville and, and NC State. And then it's at Clemson, at Wake Forest, homecoming against Syracuse. Uh, you know, following up the next week with Miami at home, you've got Boston College on the road. You got a, a nice little, you know, that Boston College game completes their ACC schedule. And then you've still got two games. Obviously, Alabama State out of the FCS, a win. I, I, I'd be, you'd be hard pressed to call that for the FCS team even given where Florida State is at. But then, you know, closing out the year at, at Florida, at the Swamp, I think the Gators have the clear advantage there. So, you know, be bookending the season with what looked to me like a couple of likely losses, and then you get into the heart of it, you know, the next two games moving up and down, they're probably 2-2 two and two out of conference. And then, I mean... Virginia's looking improved this year. Clemson's obviously a good team. Miami and Syracuse are probably better at this point than Florida State is. And, you know, that's four losses right there, most likely. And then, you know, you have to win all the others just to get to that six wins and become bowl eligible. And and I'm with you. As much as I hate to say it, I think the writing probably is on the wall for Taggart. He's one that I think is really, you know, through no fault of his own in a lot of ways. You know, you mentioned what was left behind for him. And I think, yeah, even though he's doing what he can to improve the situation, the time just isn't going to be allowed to him. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking at their schedule next year, and you're just talking about, like you said, the games that look like losses off the jump. You've got Clemson on the road and Florida on the road. They're not going to win either of those games. No. Um, they've got the massive geographical disadvantage or advantage against Boise State with the game being played in Jacksonville, and that'll help. But like you said, Boise State's got to be considered the favorite, even with a quarterback change there. Um, I would consider them the favorite. And then at Virginia, at Boston College, I mean, those are both going to be tough games to eke out wins. So, yeah, you're talking about – pretty much winning your other seven, and that includes Syracuse at home, NC State at home, and a couple of teams, you know, that just look like toss-up games. So, I mean, honestly, if he was able to pull out seven wins next year, that should be looked at as a massive win for Florida State and should be enough to keep his job. I just don't know if, you know, they look at 12-12 and and two seasons and at Florida State is good enough. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think it should be. I don't think it will be. Um, I think FSU Twitter will light up if it's only seven wins. So that is what it is. But yeah, I would say he's, I I want him trending upward. He's probably trending downward just in terms of the way that schedule looks. 
And, you know, not one last thing, not all seven win seasons are created equal. They could win seven games, and one of those wins could be over Clemson or something like that, yeah. and that's enough to kind of spark the fan base. I think that's a fair thing to say there. Um, yeah, if he definitely pulls off an upset in that game on the road, his job is safe through the 2020 season. Let's move on to the eight, uh, the SEC now. You know, there are five head coaches going into their second season. More than one-third of the coaching body in the SEC is in their sophomore year, um, at least at the school they're at. You know, every you know, two of these guys had never been head coaches before the other three uh, obviously had. Um, so let's, uh, you know, let's start with... Um, you know, the guys who do have experience coming back. We talked about Dan Mullen last week on the podcast, looking at the situation in Gainesville. Um, where do you think he stands, upward, downward? Do you think he's staying level? You know, I, I don't think we have to harp too much on Mullen this week. Yeah. If everyone listened to the podcast last week, kind of got our full thoughts. But I think he's trending upward, even with the with the issues that have kind of surfaced this offseason, that's obviously tainted what like an obvious trend upward and actually makes that a fair question at this stage because of the recruiting issues they've had stemming from the, you know, Jalen Jones, Chris Steele situation and the fallout from that. Uh, but I mean, it's impossible to look at the fact that he took a four win team to 10 wins last year and not say that that's a massive success and that they're trending upward. I think at least in the short term, Florida's a legitimate threat in the SEC East next season. Uh, they're obviously the biggest threat to Georgia in that division. So I, I think they're definitely trending upward at the moment. Uh, but there's obviously some issues that Mullen's got to solve internally in that locker room and on the recruiting trail to keep that momentum moving forward. For sure. No, I, I definitely agree, I agree for the most part. I would almost say that 10 wins probably looks like where they'll land this year. I would say, you know, I would say if I was projecting right now, he's probably right around the same range of where they ended last year. Might get to a New Year's Six Bowl. Not not really looking like they'll be playoff contenders, at least at this point. But, I, yeah, so, I, you, but things are up and up in Gainesville. I, I think that beyond 2019, the team is set up. Obviously, you mentioned the recruiting issues that have gone on. We'll, you know, we need to keep an eye on that down the road. But I think, given where they're at right now, things are promising for Gators fans. And then, yeah, we also, um, you know, kind of looking, you know, that's one of the obvious teams that looks like they might be be trending up or at least have the name that could get them back to the promised land. I think another another one that's interesting is Texas A&M with Jimbo Fisher. Personally, for me, I you know the SEC West is just so stacked. I think that team, and I think we've mentioned it in the past, they could be a better team than they were last year and finish with a worse record. You know, finish with seven or eight wins rather than the nine and four that they ended last season at. Um, but yeah, I think in general, Fisher is getting things where they need to be at Texas A&M to get the Aggies back into contention in that division. You know, he's the type of coach that, you know, he's got the chops. He obviously didn't hit his, like, career averages in terms of winning percentage last year, but in your first year, that's obviously going to happen. You flip one game and he's right there where he's always been. So, 
yeah, I, I think in general he's one that is is on the up and up. Yeah, I agree. I think they'll almost certainly finish with a worse record next year despite being a better team next season because the schedule is absolutely brutal. We talked about it before, but, I mean, they play Clemson, Alabama, and not to mention going – they finished the year brutally at Georgia, at LSU, back-to-back weeks to finish the season. That's four games off the top that are going to be really difficult for them to find ways to win. And that's not counting the fact that, you know, they also play – you know, Auburn, Mississippi State uh, in the Western Division. So, I mean, eight and four would be an absolute win of a regular season for A&M. And if Fisher can then get a bowl win again for the second year in a row and then go nine and four overall and kind of duplicate that, I think they're really set up for success in 2020. And they're definitely trending up where that program looks like it's probably the biggest immediate or at least biggest future threat to Nick Saban at Alabama, uh, even more so than LSU, despite the fact that Orgeron also looks to have LSU kind of moving upward as well. They definitely look like the biggest threat to me um, on the horizon. And I think it's only a matter of time before Fisher has the Aggies competing, not just for SEC championships, but eventually for even uh, playoff bids and national championships. I think it's a fair point. And obviously it really just, as long as he's given the time in college station to do what he needs to do with that team. And, you know, a national championship winning coach is going to get that time in a way that somebody else isn't going to get that. Um, You know, like we mentioned with Willie Taggart, Fisher is going to get way more leash than a Willie Taggart will, no matter what the situation is. But, um, yeah, I think things are really promising for Aggies fans, both, you know, not necessarily next year, like you said, still promising, but not at that level of excitement that that they're really looking at for 2020 and beyond. Um, and then there's one other head coach that had previous experience, and that's Chad Morris at Arkansas. Um, I'm not as convinced that that's a, a great choice, personally. Um, they went 2-10 last year. And frankly, you know, it, Morris was in a tough coaching situation, uh, before he took the Arkansas job, obviously, um, it, it you know to say that he went what he did, uh, you know, going two and ten at Arkansas is obviously ugly. You don't want to do that. You're in a really tough division, though, and you know, just getting to the point that he was, you know, coaching at SMU before that, looking at a career record of sixteen and thirty-two at this point. I'm not as inclined to ding him for that. It's kind of like when, you know, I, I kind of liken that to when Gene Chizik took over at Auburn and everybody said, why would you hire a guy who whose record is this? And you're like, yeah, he did that at Iowa State at a time when Iowa State was not anywhere near they are where they are right now. You know, that was a fallen program at the time he was there and try, you know, many coaches tried to come in and resurrect it. So I think with Morris, um, the real thing is, is just like systemically at Arkansas. What It's just a really tough place to, to find success, I think, especially given, you know, the way the SEC West has expanded. We've seen coaches in the past be able to, to get Arkansas to a place where they're competitive in that division. But now that you've added 
you know, you've added a Texas A&M with a Jimbo Fisher that's really rising there. And just the coaching body itself is so much better than it was in those periods when Arkansas was able to make those moves with players like Felix Jones and Darren McFadden. I mean, somebody's got to finish last in that division, right? Like, that's just how it goes. There's only so many wins that can be had every season um, in the SEC. And, you know, the problem with Morris last year wasn't the fact that they went 0-8 in the SEC, as bad as that is. The problem with Morris last year is the fact that they lost at Colorado State and got blown out at home by North Texas. Yeah. Those are two games, those are two losses that just can't happen at a program like Arkansas. And it's not, you know, it's not – it wasn't that long ago that Arkansas was, you know, competing in the SEC West, you know, at the end of uh, Bobby Petrino's uh, coaching stint there at Arkansas. They really had some really competitive teams that were playing in, you know, BCS bowl games at the time. And then Brett Bielema had a couple of really good seasons there before kind of the wheels fell off there at the end. But the problem with Morris too is the fact that, you know, I don't know what happened to their offense last year. They had no offense to speak of. And hopefully some of that'll be, you know, remedied by the fact that they should have more stable quarterback play this year because Ben Hicks coming in from SMU already having, again, the familiarity in Morris's system from their time together at SMU. And then if he's not the guy, then maybe Nick Starkle, the Texas A&M transfer, is the guy. So one of them should, in the very least, provide more stable quarterback play than Arkansas got last year, and that was really difficult uh, and really made them that much worse. And, you know, they had a lot of holes, but the fact they didn't have a quarterback that could really do much of anything really, really hurt them. But the problem with Morris at SMU was the fact that every year his offense got better, his defense kept getting worse. Yeah. So, you know, they would score 50 points a game and they'd give up 48. So, you know, and winning is winning, whatever it takes, I guess. But I I worry that long term that this isn't really going to work out. And I think a lot of people kind of had that feeling when he got the job to begin with because he had only really done – he had the reputation coming from Clemson as, you know, the offensive guru – but that really hadn't translated to a lot of wins at a place like SMU. And, you know, that, that job isn't easy uh, nowadays in particular. But I don't know. I, I don't know that he's on the hot seat right away after one year. But, I mean, another 2-10-like and 10 season, another 0-8 going 0-16 in the SEC over two years, that probably would be enough to get him out of there. I don't know that, you know, and it's going to be difficult for them to squeak out, you know, these SEC wins this year. you got to think they need to get at least a couple for him to feel safe moving into 2020, but he's having some success on the recruiting trail. So that's a good sign. Uh, but talent really isn't the issue there. I wouldn't think, cause it's not like Bielema was recruiting poorly. No, definitely. Well, and I think the other thing to look at is it really does come down to their non-conference schedule this year. So, you, you know, you mentioned these big losses against Colorado state and North Texas, and we, you know, looking at their schedule again this year, the non-conference schedule lines up in a way that any SEC school should always be 4-0 against this schedule. They play Portland State out of the big sky to open the season, which is a fun game on my radar as somebody who went to school there for a year, but I don't think anybody else is circling that on their calendars, um, except for Razorbacks fans that want to feel a winning feeling again. You know, they play Colorado State again this year at home. They play San Jose State at home with a guy in Brent Brennan who's coaching for his job this season. 
And then you've got uh, Western Kentucky, which is obviously not at the pinnacle of where it has been in the past. You know, a decent group of five school, but probably not even a Conference USA contender this season. So you've got four teams that should be definite wins. I think if Morris loses even one of those, you're going to hear that ramp up of talk about his job and how secure it really is. Yeah, I agree. They definitely got to win those four games. Um, If they can do that and maybe squeak out one SEC win and jump from, you know, two wins to five wins, that's probably enough to inspire confidence with the boosters and the fan base that he's moving things in the appropriate direction. Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, it's possible maybe to steal a game like at Kentucky. You know, not a game where you're not going to beat Bama and Tuscaloosa. You're not going to beat LSU and Death Valley. It's not going to happen this year for this team. Even winning at Ole Miss is going to be an iffy proposition. Um, But, you know, there is that opportunity to take down a team like Kentucky or to take down Missouri at home in the season finale. And I think if you get competitively closer to bowl eligibility, he'll be fine. Um, still, I, I agree with you long-term. I don't know that he is the, the long-term answer there. Now that we've talked about those three coaches before, you know, uh, we do need to go to a break fairly soon, but I do want to touch upon these two guys who were first-time head coaches as well. Uh, we talked about Moorhead quite a bit the last segment, obviously, uh, but there's also Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee. Um, what are your thoughts on those two and how they're trending? You know, with with Moorhead, it'll be interesting to see uh, if Stevens can kind of Tommy Stevens can kind of change the the direction. But like I said in the first segment, eight and four last season, and then um, the bowl loss to go eight and five was pretty disappointing. I mean, Mississippi State was a team last year coming in that a lot of people thought could end up. You know, no one thought they were going to win the West, but there was enough hype around the program that a lot of people were expecting you know Mississippi State could be the second best team in the West a lot of people were saying that heading into the 2018 season they could really you know unseat LSU and Auburn and Texas A&M and finish second maybe win nine ten games you know it would have been a huge season for that and you know Moorhead's not expected to compete for SEC championships as much as he wants to talk about that to fire up his team. Mississippi State's not going to be a perennial SEC contender. They're in a stacked division where they're always going to be fighting an uphill battle against those, you know, four teams that I already mentioned, Alabama, LSU, Texas A&M, and Auburn. You know, they're always going to be fighting an uphill battle, and that's not to mention the in-state rivalry with Ole Miss, um, and then if Morris can figure out things in Arkansas, the division's really tough. So I really don't know. I, again, I, I think it was kind of a weird year for them. They were the best defense in college football, but they rarely could get their offense going. Yeah. Uh, their defense was dominant, for instance, when they played LSU and Baton Rouge and played really well enough to win that game. But yeah. Nick Fitzgerald had trouble com- even completing a pass against LSU's defense, and that really doomed them. So, you know, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if Stevens can do anything. I'm not really sure where they're headed uh, I think we'll get a a much better idea of that this season. Um, and he, Moorhead's got is going to have to fight off the stigma that, you know, he's playing with Dan Mullen's players, right? He yeah. last season 
he inherited a team that was good enough to win eight or nine games without much, you know, quality coaching. So I don't know. It's a different direction that program's heading in uh, than they were under Mullen. It'd be interesting to see if he can find success because that is a difficult job. Mullen might have made it look easier, but prior to him getting there, I mean, the Sylvester Crooms of the world really struggled to find sustained success there because it is a difficult job. Oh, yeah. And then uh, over at Tennessee, I think Jeremy Pruitt, despite the fact that, you know, they went five and seven last year, I think he's got Tennessee really moving in the right direction. Um, They hauled in a really good recruiting class. They've got a ton of returning talent from last season's team. Uh, And, you know, they had a frustrating end of the season, getting, you know, blown out by Vanderbilt to end the year was frustrating. Not really something that Tennessee fans are used to seeing. Uh, but again, that's not a place where the cupboard was left sta- stocked very well at all at the end of Butch Jones's tenure, um, a, a program that really needed a culture change. And I think they've gotten that under Pruitt. And I think Tennessee could really be a sleeper in the East next year. I'm not ready to say they're going to seriously compete for the division title, but I think they could really be the spoiler. It wouldn't surprise me if they were able to pull out a win over a Georgia or over a Florida that kind of swung the division race in the other's favor. Um, and I think really... 2019, they're going to take a step, maybe win seven, eight games. And I think 2020, you're going to see Tennessee really ready to compete in the East. I think that's probably a fair assessment. Um, You know, I stand pretty much with you on Moorhead. I think it's one of those things where this year is going to be interesting. And just to touch on your, your main point there in terms of playing with Mullins players, I think bringing in a player like Tommy Stevens is really interesting in that it sort of does preempt that discussion. You know, if you're playing with Stevens rather than Keyshawn Thompson, it's you're, you're, you're brought in your own guy. And so, you know, what happens this year will be really interesting in that perspective as well. In terms of Pruitt, like I think this year does offer some promise for sure They don't have a team like West Virginia, who they opened up with last year. Um, I think that really, you know, it set the tone. It allowed them to have a really challenging game in Pruitt's first game, but that also set them up for a 26-point loss and, you know, set the tone for the rest of this season that they were a competitive team, But in six of those seven games that they lost, they were nowhere near close. You know, the only one that was within a single score was the South Carolina game. And otherwise, it was a lot of blowouts. And so that kind of gives me a little bit of pause going into this year. Um, But at the same time, they don't have a team like West Virginia. They open with Georgia State, BYU, and Chattanooga all at Neyland Stadium. It really gives them the opportunity to be a 3-0 and team before they go play Florida in their rivalry game. Before they, you know, they take on Florida and Georgia on either side of, September, of the September-October shift. They have a bye week in between those two games. And I think those are really going to be the, the litmus test, obviously, on where they stand in the division this year. If they can take even one of those um, contest, it's really going to set them up to possibly be in contention in that conference, um, sort of ahead of schedule. I don't think it's going to happen, um, but I think even just having those three games to begin the year against, you know, beatable opponents on their home turf, 
sets Tennessee up much better to build that momentum into 2020 that you were talking about. Yeah, I think the schedule thing, like you said, from last year is an interesting point. I think to be fair, I think four of those six blowout losses are pretty defensible. Oh, yeah. Because you've got the first game against West Virginia, so you got a veteran quarterback on the other side and Will Greer going against a first, first-time first head coach. I mean, that was a game that anyone could kind of see coming. Then you're talking Florida, Georgia, Alabama blowout losses to three teams who were in the New Year's Six. But ones that don't make any sense is the fact that, you know, after pulling out a, you know, kind of shocking 24-7 win over Kentucky in November, which was, you know, a huge surprise because Kentucky at that stage had just recently been knocked out of the SEC East race and then, you know, got pretty much manhandled by Tennessee. Then they go and get blown out at home against Missouri the next week and then just fall on their face or on the road against Vanderbilt. So those were the kind of indefensible ones, and I'm not sure – what happened in those two games? Because you had a Tennessee team fighting for their bowl lives. You know, they just needed one of those, and they would have been bowl eligible. And getting bowl eligible last year would have been a huge win for Pruitt. Uh, in the very least, getting the extra bowl practices for a young team. Oh, of course. Uh, that they weren't able to get. But I, I still think that Pruitt's doing the right things there. I think he's pushing the right buttons. Uh, he's obviously got recruits excited because there's a lot of really talented players that are joining the Tennessee team this year. And like I said, I don't expect them to seriously compete for the East, but I think they will be kind of a fascinating sleeper pick next season, or at least the the team that uh, will pull a couple of upsets that might not really be expected. And that's, that's something they really did last year. I mean, not only did they beat Kentucky last year, they beat Auburn last year on the yeah. road. Uh, and what was a really big shocker, uh, I don't know Auburn wasn't great last season, but then going to Auburn and winning was kind of massive. So I, I don't know that they'll, you know, again, seriously compete because they've got to go to Florida and then hosting Georgia. But I think they could pull out a, an upset, maybe one of those two games, and maybe their upset win is something that swings the division uh, in the other team's favor. Totally. Yeah, I that, so that covers the ACC and SEC coaches. Um I think that's a really good overview. I think we're pretty much in agreement on most of these guys and where they stand. Um, but we're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be back to talk about the Big Ten and Pac-12 coaches. So stay tuned. Welcome back for our final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bagalki here with John Mitchell. Uh, for this final segment, we're going to be looking at second-year head coaches in the Big Ten and the Pac-12. Uh, so I think we're going to start with the only school in the Big Ten that has a second-year head coach entering 2019, and that's a pretty big one. It's uh, Nebraska with Scott Frost. Uh, the former UCF head coach took over at his alma mater last year. And a lot of people are really looking at Nebraska as a team that's trending upward in 2019. Do you actually think this is the case, John? You know, I think that's an interesting question. I think, you know, long term, Scott Frost can really find some success at his alma mater. But I think it's probably a little too early to really be touting. There's a lot of people that are I mean, touting them as potential Big Ten championship game participant next season. I mean, there's plenty of people who have included them in their way too early top 25. And we're talking about a team that won four games last season, you know? So I, I do think Nebraska will be improved. I think Adrian Martinez is a, you know, really interesting piece to build around. And he got a lot of valuable experience as a freshman, uh, despite the fact that they, you know, lost as many games as they lost. But, 
you know, we were talking about the last segment about Tennessee and how they had a lot of blowouts. But on the flip side, Nebraska had a lot of close games, a lot of close losses among those eight. You know, they obviously opened the season with, with Colorado and lost close. They lost close the next week to Troy, which was a disappointment for a lot of people. Uh, but it's not like Troy was a bad team. I mean, that, they have the stigma of being a group of five school, but Troy was a 10-win team last year. So, you know, and then they, you know, lost an overtime game to Northwestern, really fought hard on the road against both Ohio State and Iowa in November yeah. and came up just short in both of those games. So, and, you know, pulled out a really impressive late win over Michigan State as well, which was kind of huge for the momentum of the program. So I'm not ready to say that Nebraska is a Big Ten contender or anything like that, but I think they will probably be among the most improved teams in the nation next year. You're probably looking at a team who, you know, if they could turn around and win eight games, double their win total from last year, even if that doesn't mean they're in the race for the Big Ten title, it could it's still a massive win for that program and a massive step in the right direction for Frost. I don't think Nebraska's ever going to be Nebraska again. I don't think they have the recruiting footprint that a lot of these other blue blood programs have. Uh, but I think he's, I, I mean, their division in the Big Ten is kind of right for the taking, right? And that division uh, really needs Nebraska to be at least competent to make it, you know, more to make it intriguing, you know, uh, with Wisconsin, Iowa, and that could be a really fascinating race if Nebraska does take that leap because you've got Wisconsin, you've got Iowa, you've got Northwestern defending their title. It could be a really fascinating divisional race, but I don't know. What, what's your opinion? I know uh, you got a really good look at Frost at Central Florida and been pretty high on his coaching ability. I love Frost. I, I think he's an incredible coach. Obviously, as somebody who grew up a Wisconsin fan, I'd prefer that he doesn't do a great job at Nebraska. But, you know, I, I'm i of the mind, I don't think necessarily that Nebraska can't be Nebraska again. Um, you know, like even looking at their history toward the end of their Big 12 days when they had Dominican Sue in there. You know, he was a Grant High School player from Portland, Oregon. He was, you know, like far outside of what you consider their traditional recruiting grounds. And I think they really need to be looking for those sorts of players again. And it's all about rebuilding the Nebraska brand around the sort of history that that, that brand does entail. I don't think it's, it, it's impossible for that to happen. We've obviously seen schools like Oklahoma rise and fall, even a school like Alabama rise and fall, based around who they have in there. I think Scott Frost is obviously the right guy for the job. Um, and I think their schedule does line up nice for them. Not I think being a, a Big Ten contender this year, even as you mentioned in the you know uh, earlier in this podcast, it is a wide open race there. And at the same time, I would be shocked to see them actually at the top of the heat by the end of the season. But they do get Northwestern, Wisconsin, and Iowa. Their three biggest challengers in the west all at home this year all three of those schools have to come to lincoln uh so too does ohio state um they do not have a game against michigan this year or michigan state um so you know the schedule does line up favorably for them i think um you know the big early litmus test obviously is the trip to boulder to face former big eight rival colorado the schedule I think does line up to give them eight, nine wins. 
I, I think they could really have that turnaround. And depending on what does happen in the Big Ten East, that could, or the Big Ten West, rather, that could be enough. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I mean, eight or nine wins would be a huge step forward and really signal them as most likely the the Big Ten um, West favorites heading into 2020, at least. Was And especially, I, I think the other thing that must be noted is Frost as, you know, as a Nebraska guy who grew up in Nebraska, who transferred back to Nebraska after starting his college career at Stanford and getting the chance to win national championships under Tom Osborne. You know, we talk about things like the Michigan man around Harbaugh. I think this is really a similar case where Frost is a Nebraska guy through and through. He knows what that culture entails, and he knows what it does take to bring success to what even in the 90s was sort of an outpost place. You know, like Osborne obviously still had it humming at that point, and he was able to finally win his three national championships in his final four years. But at the same time, it's hard to say that even under Osborne late in his career that Nebraska was, you know, that same sort of program that it was earlier in Osborne's career and even under Bob Devaney. So, yeah, and I, it's obviously the right hire. Frost is, I think, going to do a really good job there. Uh, whether or not he's able to win national championships or not, we'll see. But I think it's fascinating because I think that's a great thing for the Big Ten. The Big Ten needs Nebraska to be good, I think, especially the Big Ten West with, you know, Wisconsin uh, and Iowa and all them teams. You know, when they made the split of the divisions, the hope was that Nebraska would be Nebraska again at some place down the road uh, to make that division competitive. Because right now the balance of powers is very much so in the East when you're talking about Ohio State. Michigan, uh, Penn State, Michigan State, all in that division kind of fighting it out every year. And there's been a lot of talk uh, since those divisions were kind of decided that, you know, maybe there needs to be some reshuffling because it doesn't really seem fair to have it the way it is. But if Nebraska becomes the the program that Frost could get them into, then you're talking about a division that could be, you know, really, really good. And maybe in a couple of years, the the talk has flipped. And that's, you know, the preeminent division in the Big Ten. Oh, of course, and the the potential is definitely there, and I think, you know, divisional strength within a conference is obviously cyclical. Um, in Frost's case, though, like, just looking at Nebraska in general, I, I think the point you make is, is huge. Um, while the Big Ten br- brought in, you know, like, Maryland and Rutgers, and we we talked about that as you're, you're hunting for TVs, you know, you're hunting for households with TVs, you're looking for that footprint. You don't bring in a Nebraska because there's a lot of TV sets in Omaha and Lincoln. Absolutely. You know, I think that's the thing to realize here is Nebraska was brought in for Nebraska's football history. Yes, particularly for football. Absolutely. Exactly. And so, yeah, the Big Ten really does need Nebraska to make that turnaround. And, I, you know, I think if Frost can't do it, It'll be really interesting to see what it actually does take to make that happen. Because I think he does have things rolling in the right direction there. Yeah, and that's the hope, too, is that if he gets Nebraska to a level where they're among the best teams in college football, you don't have to worry about him scouting out other jobs. Because that's home for him. That's where he wants to be. He's not going to use Nebraska as a stepping stone to one day grab, you know, the USC job or the Alabama job or whatever it is down the road. 
he's going to want to be there. Maybe the NFL gets alluring and he wants to try that out. But other than that, you don't have to worry about it. If you find him, you've got a, one of the best young coaches in college football, and you probably got him for the next decade to two decades. Yeah, I mean, you could have another Tom Osborne who is there for 25 years if things play right for them. On that note, let's move to another coach that I'm fairly intimately familiar with from my time in Eugene, um, obviously talking about Chip Kelly, who's now back in the Pac-12 in the other division at UCLA. Um, last year was a 3-9 and nine season for the Bruins, and you know, I, I think as we've talked about with other things here, with other programs we've talked about so far, it was in some ways a deceptive 3-9. and nine. Um, the Bruins, especially later in the year, were looking more competitive. And I'm, you know, looking at their schedule this year, they have Cincinnati, San Diego State. They have that big game with Oklahoma on the schedule. I think that's going to be an interesting one, not necessarily in terms of them winning the game. Last year when they went to Norman, it was a 49-21 blowout. I think really what the litmus test there is, is can they can they narrow that gap and at least be closer to a college football playoff contender? Um, because if they do that, I think Kelly really, it's going to take a bit of time. He didn't have the level of talent that he had at Oregon when he came in as Mike Bellotti's offensive coordinator and, you know, eventually taking over as the head coach. It, it, it's just not comparable at this point, which is really funny to think about because Los Angeles is so much closer to those recruits, but it's it, it's just a fallen brand at this point. Like, if you're wanting to go to, to school in Los Angeles, you're going to USC for the most part, at least to play football. It just doesn't have that, that allure that it, it, it has in the past, and I think it really could again. Um, it's just really interesting though, to see Chip Kelly in general in that, that powder blue, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, I, I think that, that for me is just sort of a bit of cognitive dissonance there. So that's definitely flavoring a lot of my perceptions of this. I definitely, I wish the best for Chip. I wish he had never come back to the PAC 12. Um, but I think, you know, with the way the Pac-12 South is as open as it is, with the fact that we've never really seen one team really since that split into two divisions, since they brought in Utah and, and uh, Colorado, I, it, it, there really has been no one team that stepped up. USC was falling off the rails. You know, Pete Carroll was out the door right as the divisions were, you know, as the conference was expanding. So... The opportunity is there. I don't know necessarily that Dorian Thompson Robinson is going to be the guy to take them to the next level. So it's really going to be incumbent on Chip to to find that next guy. And especially, you know, with guys like Joshua Kelly to be building up the running game to where he had it in Eugene, because that's really what's going to drive that system. And so I think they're really still a few years out. And... um I think UCLA is the kind of school that will give Kelly the few years he needs to at least see if it does work out. Yeah, this was a rebuild, and I think UCLA and their fans and everybody knew that. Uh, and, you know, last season I think they were better than their 3-9 and nine record showed. I mean, they he benefited from just a murderer's row right off the bat, right? I mean, yeah. they opened 
I mean, at home, nonetheless, but they opened with Cincinnati, who was a 10-win team last year, and they went to Oklahoma, and they came back home and played Fresno State, who was, you know, the Mountain West champions last year, and arguably one of the top, you know, two or three teams in the group of five, right, all last season. So, I mean, those are three games right off the bat that are just really difficult contests. Then you open the Pac-12 schedule by having to go to Colorado, so that's a tough road game. Then you come back home and have to play Pac-12 champion Washington. But they were a different team after September. Once they got their feet wet and started getting going, they started 0-5, but they were 3-4 and over their last seven games. And they were another team that played a lot of close games. You know, they went to they played Washington close. They were lost by seven. They played um, Arizona State close. They lost by three. They lost by seven to Stanford in the last game of the season. Yeah. So they were really competitive in some of those games. You know, pulled out a win over USC, which, you know, as, you know, USC being down last season, but still earning that rivalry win in your first year earns you a little bit more good graces than a lot of coaches would get uh, for a three and nine season. And my big concern with Chip and, is the fact that they he really had some slow starts on the recruiting trail. Yeah. Uh, but they picked up the pace there at the end. I think ended up pulling in um, the a middling Pac-12 class. I think they were like sixth in the conference, which, you know, you would hope with a name like Chip Kelly and a brand like UCLA, you can recruit a little bit better than that um, and get back into, you know, the top 25 nationally that we saw, you know, when Jim Moore Jr. was the coach, they were recruiting top 25 classes consistently. He just couldn't really get the product correct on the field. So we know Kelly can coach. We know he can coach successfully in college. We saw him build a juggernaut at Oregon. It'll be interesting if he can do the same at UCLA, but he's got a really good opportunity with the fact that USC is struggling, you know, so, and USC struggling and then could be going through a coaching change if things don't take a dramatic step in the right direction this year. So the instability at USC is really aiding him. And I think, I think UCLA will be a much improved team next season. I don't think they will be a, um, a PAC 12 South contender or anything like that next season, but they should be able, they should be good enough to get bowl eligible which would be a big step in the right direction for Kelly. Um, and I, like I said, I think he figured some things out after the first few games. They didn't get the benefit of opening up with, you know, an FCS program or someone like San Jose State. You know, they played a couple of group of five teams in September, but they happened to play two of the best group of five teams in the country, yeah. which was really difficult. And that doesn't change this year. You know, they opened this year at Cincinnati. They got to make the return trip to Nippert. And then they get San Diego State at home after that, who's, you know, typically one of the better teams uh, in the Mountain West as well. And like you said, they play Oklahoma. So they've still got a really tough out-of-conference schedule uh, that'll be difficult to to navigate. So I think if they can scratch out and get to six wins, I think that would be a big step. But I do still think that Chip Kelly is going to be able to build something pretty good there. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think Kelly is a good enough coach to, to make some waves there at UCLA. In the Pac-12, um, obviously, you know, the conference is grouped into its pod system, you know, with the different geographic regions. And I think it was really interesting that we have two sets of, of second-year coaches at both the Arizona schools and the or- the Oregon schools. Um, so yeah, let's talk about I, I let's go with Arizona first and, and close up with Oregon. Um, 
you know, we have both Kevin Sumlin and Herm Edwards there with the Wildcats and Sun Devils, respectively. Um, Sumlin was just under 500 last year. Edwards, um, you know, got Arizona State to a bowl game, got to seven wins. Where do you see these two coaches at moving forward into 2019 and beyond? It's kind of funny because I think the Sumlin hire was pretty much praised uh, nationally, a uh, good pull for Arizona. And, you know, everyone kind of derided the Arizona State hire of Herm Edwards. It's kind of funny that Herm Edwards had the more initial success than Sumlin. It looked at least in the early goings that uh, Sumlin would have the edge, uh, at least for initial success, with inheriting a quarterback in Khalil Tate who just seemed like a perfect glove-like fit for what Sumlin wants to do offensively. And I I think he probably deserves a mulligan for year one because uh, Tate spent most of the year hobbled and was, you know, rarely 100%. And we've talked about this before. We both feel that Arizona could really be um, a dark horse in the Pac-12 South race if Tate's able to stay healthy next season. Um, And that's something that someone probably needs to get some good graces back because, they you know, they had a really difficult year one. Uh, No one... They were projected heading into the season as a, you know, a Pac-12 dark horse, as a team who could compete in the division. And for them not to make a bowl game was a really tough thing to swallow uh, for a fan base that really thought they hit it, uh, hit it big with that hire. And, you know, they had a tough opening of the season, losing to both BYU and Houston early on. Um, But, you know, Arizona State on the other side of the state, um, I was not a big fan of the Herm Edwards hire personally. I really wasn't. I didn't really think that that made a lot of sense to hire a guy who's as old as Herm Edwards is and has really no college football coaching experience, at least in the last several decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, to be fair to him, they won seven games in his first season, which is nice. I think he benefited from the fact that he had, you know, a veteran quarterback in Manny Wilkins who had kind of been around the block and then had one of the, arguably the best um, skill position player in the Pac-12 in Nikhil Harry. Uh, Both of those players being gone will be very difficult for them to replace. They might have to lean on uh, Eno Benjamin at running back a lot more next season. And he's obviously a heck of a football player. Uh, But I think it'll be interesting to see kind of what happens with Herm Edwards now that it's his team now fully. It's, you know, his going to be his player's what he's, and he, you know, he's actually recruiting a lot better than I kind of expected him to recruit too. Uh, so I think it'll be interesting once the program really gets his fingerprints all over it on his new leadership model, as they like to call it. I think it'll be interesting to see kind of what goes from there. I'm still not convinced that he's set for long-term success in Tempe, uh, but obviously year one would have to be considered mostly a success. Uh, from an on-the-field standpoint. So, I, you know, I don't know. I think the jury's still out on both. I can't really get a good feel uh, for either. And, you know, and that's to be expected after one year. I think as fans and as prognosticators, we tend to overreact to small sample sizes um, in either direction. We've seen plenty of coaches, you know, blaze a trail their first season and have really fantastic success and then fall off a cliff. I mean, Kevin Sumlin's one that you can look at immediately, right, is having really strong early success at Texas A&M with Johnny Manziel. Um, And then, you know, as soon as Manziel left, that kind of started going the other way. So you never really know. But I I think that Sumlin could still find success in Tucson. And I still 
still am a bit up in the air on what Edwards will do long-term at Arizona State, but I don't know that that was a long-term – I don't know if that was a hire made with the long-term in mind anyway. I felt like yeah. he was a guy who was kind of going to shepherd the program uh, for a few years before handing it off to a younger coach that maybe he's currently grooming. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I, I think in terms of down the road, yeah, someone is more likely to still be there in five years. Um, if we're looking at it in that way. And to be fair, I would, you know, with the churn and everything that goes on and with expectations that get set, I would put my money on both those coaches not being there in five years. That's just, you know, kind of the way college football itself goes as well. Um, Obviously, if, you know, Arizona were to step up and steal the Pac-12 this year, that would make the story completely different. Um, And... Obviously, with a talent like Khalil Tate, it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. I think it's more likely for a team like the Wildcats than it is for the Sun Devils this year in that in the Pac-12 South, um, just because of what uh, Arizona State did lose, as you mentioned, in terms of both Wilkins and Harry and... You know, losing that sort of side of the game is going to force him to lean on Benjamin more. So it'll be really interesting to see what Edwards and his staff do with that. But yeah, I think generally I would agree with you that, you know, jury is probably still out. Obviously, you know, this is an exercise that is mostly fun. We're, we're, right. we're, throwing, we're throwing darts at the board right now, really. Um because, yeah, I, I think no matter what you say here, it, it's a coin flip. So, that said, I, I, I think both of these guys do have the potential. I would be shocked in five years if they're both still there. And, you know, speaking of guys who probably still won't be there in the next five years, I would I would tend to say the same thing about Jonathan Smith at Oregon State. Um, just the way that program trended after last year. Um, I don't know what it's going to take for Oregon State to get back to to the level of prominence they felt last decade um, when they were actually in Pac-10 contention under Mike Riley before the conference expanded. Yeah, kind of an interesting thing there is, what do you think, how different would the Pac-12 be if Mike Riley never left Corvallis for Lincoln and went to Nebraska? You know, would they be you know, the same Oregon State team that had become a legitimate Pac-12 contender, you know, and they were competing with Oregon and the others for, you know, Pac-12 supremacy every year. And now they've been, you know, the perennial whipping boy in the conference. They haven't been, you know, really competitive recently. And I, if anyone though, Zach, deserved a year zero, it was absolutely Jonathan Smith oh, and yeah. Oregon State. Um, and I, you know, I don't know they're still struggling on the recruiting trail. And that's where you've got to really look at how it's the easiest way to examine early, you know, coaches, uh, but they were, you know, 12th in the PAC 12 in recruiting this cycle. Uh, so that doesn't really point to them taking a big step in the next couple of years. Uh, but he's got the longest leash, I would say among those coaches, because he had the lowest expectations coming into his job. Yeah. Right. So he, you know, they weren't expected to do much of note last year, and, you know, they didn't. You know, they won, I think they went 2-10 and 10 last year, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, and beat one team that wasn't an FCS school, and they won an overtime game 
at Colorado, which, you know, that should be celebrated. That's a very, you know, Colorado wasn't a bowl team last year, but going on the road and earning a conference win is a big step forward for Oregon State from where they've been. So, you know, if you look at the schedule next year, too, there doesn't look to be a lot of wins on the horizon. I mean, they open with Oklahoma State, which yeah. will be tough. they got to make the long trek to Hawaii next season as well. Um, and then, you know, they obviously play their conference schedule. So there's probably not going to be many wins there for him to take next season either. And the the unfortunate thing for Jonathan Smith is, too, is he's about to start dealing with an absolute monster on the other side of the state, in my opinion, oh, yeah. uh, with Oregon. Because uh, I think Mario Cristobal and Eugene is really building something special again. And I'm so happy to see it, too, because he's one of my favorite coaches um, in the game just because I, I really enjoyed what he did, not just as an assistant coach at Alabama, but before that, I thought he was doing a really good job at Florida International before he was kind of un, unfairly, in my opinion, fired from that gig. And I'm really glad to see him back on his feet and really getting an opportunity that he really has deserved and earned. Um, and, you know, he had a good first season, you know, where he went nine and four last year. And I think right now they're positioned to where I think, them or Washington will be considered the Pac-12 favorites heading into the, uh, in the at least in the post-spring college football world that we're in yeah. currently. They've got to be considered one of the two favorites to capture the Pac-12 uh, on the heels of uh, Justin Herbert's return to Eugene and a monster recruiting class. That's also going to be something that helps is the talent level at Oregon is about to be so much more than any other Pac-12 school because he's recruiting circles around the rest of the conference right now. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I think a couple of things have really sort of brought Oregon back to that level they were under Kelly. Um, I think the way they're practicing now, I've definitely read a couple of things um, from from back in Oregon in terms of just the way they're bringing a lot more intensity to it. There's also a lot more um, targeted focus around strength training and conditioning in really making sure that what they're doing is geared toward being effective, being efficient on a football field. It seems obviously like something that's pretty elementary when we think about that, but they're doing what they need to do with this team. And so, yeah, I think things are really, obviously Jonathan Smith is in a rough situation, both because He's looking at, you know, if he does get to stay in Corvallis for a decade, he's probably looking at a decade of Oregon once again being the dominant team in the Civil War rivalry. But that said, you know, I, I'm with you on Cristobal. I didn't think he got a fair shake at FIU at all. I, I we, you know, we were both talking back when we, we wrote the column a decade ago. Um about that situation and, and how he he was as a coach then. And I think it's really interesting to have seen that Oregon has given that first Power 5 opportunity to two longtime uh, group of five coaches or non-AQ coaches as it used to be in both Willie Taggart and Mario Cristobal. I think both of them getting to go through there and get their opportunity in Eugene was really great for that program. And Cristobal staying along, and I think this year, especially with new defensive coordinator Andy Avalos coming in from Boise State, they really have an opportunity to use sort of a jumbled mass of talent that they've had. Like, I think 
defensively, especially recruiting in the past couple of years has been something where systems have changed, you know, from the Aliotti era to, to moving into, um, you know, under Helfrich, uh, Don Pelham, and then, um, you know, obviously the Jim Levitt era, you had some transitions in, in the schemes that were put into place. So you have sort of a mismatch of players. And I think Avalos bringing in a system that can go multiple really easily um, is, is probably a really great thing for the roster they brought in. So I think that's another thing that has them trending upward this year. And, you know, Cristobal by extension. And, you know, it, it's cool because looking back, maybe for Cristobal, the best thing that ever happened to him is the fact that FIU decided to let him go because he got to, you know maybe go from not maybe being prepared to take a job like Oregon. He got to go to Alabama, sit back, learn the structure and everything that Nick Saban's built in Tuscaloosa, and then able to now bring that with him to Oregon, like you said, with the focused, you know, strength and conditioning program and stuff like that. It's kind of been a staple of Saban's whole tenure there. So I think him being able to do that has really gotten him more well-prepared to be a coach at a program like Oregon. I'm really excited to see what he can do. And I, I mean, if he can go out and win, think about how well he's recruiting right now. If Oregon can go win a PAC 12 championship in year two under him, you got to think that's going to even be a bigger bump. Oh yeah, for sure. I, yeah. Future's bright for this duck for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I would be, I'd be excited if I was you. I'm excited uh, from the outside, just because I like Crystal Ball so much, I think it's difficult not to like that program uh, as it stands currently. Certainly. Yeah, obviously, unless you're a Beavers or Huskies fan. Um, Fair. And on that note, I you know we've covered all of the Power 5 second-year coaches coming back. Um, let us know what you think about these coaches. Let us know which ones you think we got right, which ones you think we got wrong. You can find us on Twitter at JLMitchell93 and at ZBagalki. Um, so, yeah, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you on just about anything we've talked about in here on this or other podcasts or things you'd like to hear down the road. On that note, it's been great getting to talk with you again, John, this week. Um, just want to let everybody out there in cyberspace know we will be taking next week off for the long Memorial Day weekend. I will also be at a conference out of town uh, presenting on research that has absolutely nothing to do with college football, um, but does have to do with sports. So again, it's great getting to talk to you guys. We will be back again on Wednesday, June 5th with the next edition of the podcast. So we look forward to talking with you guys again in two weeks. Hope you have a good uh, Memorial Day weekend, and we'll talk with you all again soon.